0: All right, welcome to Behind the White Coat, episode four. Uh, today we have with us uh, two guests, and I'll let you all uh, introduce yourselves.
1: Great. Uh, my name is Dr. Ron Holtz. I'm a board-certified c- psychiatrist. Uh, I was born and raised in, in Nebraska. I uh, went to medical school in Kansas City, Missouri, and now I practice clinical psychiatry out in San Francisco, California.
2: My name is Reed Gamble. I'm currently a first-year medical student. Uh, here at Kent City University. I am from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, currently have an interest across the spectrum of medicine, but focus more on pediatrics OB currently.
0: And then just in case you forgot, I'm Ryan Sheehy, and then I've got uh, my Mr. Co-host over there.
3: He's back!
0: He's over there trying to be sneaky. Uh, He thinks he's sneaky, but he's not really that sneaky.
3: Very sneaky. (laughs) Dr. Holt, can I ask you this question? Have you ever had grits?
1: Have you ever had grits? Yes. Probably not. Not as good as you have. You don't have to answer that question. <laughs> See, but he he's had grits. I have had grits. He's
3: he's had grits. See, Read grits. Uh, no, it's called. Oh oatmeal. my! It's called what? Oatmeal. In no, oatmeal and grits are not the same. We have oatmeal in Mississippi as Our well. Our shrimp is frozen too, so. Oh my gosh! And at Costco. Fro- yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's keep going, Doctor G. He frozen shrimp. This is not good. <laughs>
0: this is a longstanding. Uh, debacle between him and I. Got it. Um, so, he likes to bring things back up. <laughs> so, uh, let's let's just kind of open up a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about, um, I'd like to hear a little bit about your path to psychiatry, um, if you'd like to share that a little bit with us. Mm-hmm.
1: So, I actually um, became interested in psychiatry when I was a teenager. Uh, during my high school and college years, I actually uh, worked as a psychiatric technician at a large psychiatric hospital in Omaha, Nebraska. And that was my first exposure to mental health and the treatment of mental health. And so I kind of had an, an interest that started back then.
0: Okay, that's great. Um,
2: oh, oh. my interest in medical school or just general path? Why KCU? Why KCU? I'm
3: putting you on the interview spectrum again. Like, why KCU? You've been interviewed all over again. Yes.
2: Yes. Um, Circuit, you know, 2019. Um, I would say my, my path to medical school, specifically KCU, was a combination of both just general, you apply to many schools and you see what comes back to you, but also um, I think as I've matriculated and started here, I've realized the support for my passion, specifically uh, queer health and advocating for more innovative curriculum and more representation of the LGBTQ community um, in medical school Education, I think KCU has done a great job at supporting my passion and faculty and staff here have definitely um, cultivated that, that I'd say that excitement that I have for the future.
0: That kind of leads me to a question i like to ask people that I, that I talk with and that uh, you know, if, if you had all the glitter in the world and there was unicorns about uh, living among us and th- there was powers that you could just change whatever you wanted to whenever, it, you could just make your dreams come true. What would be that thing that you would change that would alter your professional track, uh, your, p- perhaps your education, or, or just in the system in general? What, what's that thing that you wish that you could just control or flip the switch on?
1: Well, I, I can certainly an- answer that. Um, when I was here in medical school at K- KCU, we didn't have any kind of curriculum or any kind of programming for lesbian, gay, bisexual, or trans health and I think that's been a big disservice not only to me but to physicians that are out there practicing now and also to the patients themselves because a lot of patients don't get the kind of care that they need because the doctors haven't been trained for um, what the LGBTQ community needs as far as their health healthcare needs. Um, My wish would be is that um, LGBTQ issues could be spread out in the curriculum across the country, across the world so that when someone comes in for whatever needs that they have to to the doctor, they don't have to worry about whether their provider has been trained to give them the best care possible.
0: That's great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Do you have one? Yeah,
2: I would, I would like to update. I think there's a, definitely as of right now being in this millennial generation, everyone kind of understands the LGBTQ community. Um, and in terms of everyone has probably some sort of friend or family member that identifies in that community as well. However, I think there's a more complex subject of intersectionality and talking about race and ethnicity, religion, and and in addition to sexuality and gender. Um, And in medicine, we we find that, you know, you're not just coming in as a gay patient, which, you know, they have many other identities. And so it's great, you know, to to learn about how to treat that LGBT community in terms of their health needs. Um, I would just, I would love to see more talk about how just the whole picture. And I think that DO schools in osteopathic medicine should definitely feed into that on how, you know, as a patient, you come from many different backgrounds and you have many different, uh, I would say, identities and needs, and a physician should be able to know how to take care of all of them. Um, so I think that would be, so education in terms of a more comprehensive view on that.
3: Oh, my turn? Um, I would equate it to an artist trying to paint a picture. Um, I've never seen, a lot of artists just try to use one particular color when they paint a picture, right? Uh, I don't care which color it is. It's hard to make a beautiful picture. Some of the most beautiful pictures that we have and we know, the Sistine Chapel, right? Uh, The Mona Lisa, they incorporate a variety of color, a variety of schemes into the totality to make the picture more beautiful. I think we should do the same when it talks when we talk about society, incorporating all of the schemes, all of the colors, all of the backgrounds in order to make our society more beautiful, to take away from some of uh, the, the discrimination, some of the hate, because I think when we start to do that specifically in medical education, we get a, a more well-rounded physician. We get a physician who's not Afraid of what's behind the door when they get ready to open it up like it doesn't matter who's behind the door They're already trained as dr. Hope alluded to they're already trained to handle this They're already trained to be empathetic to understand uh, Certain backgrounds come with certain stories Everybody has a story regardless of where you're from in the world everybody has a story to their background to their race to their creed Everybody has that, we just have to be accepting. And once we become accepting of utilizing all of those colors to paint that beautiful picture, then we get back to who we are. We get back to actually having a great society, we're making great physicians, and then we have better patient outcomes with better healthcare. That's, that's my take on it.
0: Yeah, and that really connects with something that uh, is kind of a personal thing for me, is that I believe in the worth of all people. And so I wish I could flip that switch in everyone, to, for everyone to believe that um, you know, everyone has value and worth. Mm-hmm. And that if I could flip that switch into people and make them believe that, yes, everyone has value, everyone has worth, um, that's, that would be my magic switch that I wish I could flip.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think what we're seeing is some com- commonality here among the fours, which I think is true, is the intersection. And I, I've been giving a lot of talks around the country, probably the last three to four months, on the in, uh, intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and mental health. Those are very important things. And a lot, because a patient doesn't come in with just one complaint, right? They've got numerous things going on. And I think once we're able to see the person as who they are, wholly, then we're able to give them the best care possible.
2: And I think there's there, something that just popped into my head, but that, the, that switch and how you said, People could just believe that people have value but i think also too if someone could feel that that journey that that patient felt so if you could switch um you know make a switch in someone's brain and allow them to feel what it means to come out or what it means to be trans in society have some empathy and to you know be in their specific shoes um, i think everyone would have a better understanding because it's really hard to teach it, someone's journey it's easy to say this community faces these specific health disparities but it's hard to say this is what a individual feels when they're coming out and i think a lot of physicians and and providers forget that you know when you see a patient they might not be openly gay or might not be accepting of their identity they might even think else they might even not accept their identity and you there's it's a lot more complicated than you just coming in as a gay patient or as a trans patient there's a whole journey to that so teach that's a very hard thing
3: absolutely to teach it is a very hard thing but to when you're teaching it you're trying to provide exposure Mm -hmm. i think even when you're trying to teach it not teaching it and not having that exposure is even more of a danger than teaching it incorrectly Mm -hmm. not to be exposed is is bad because then you you have nothing you have nothing to fall back on you have nothing to say that yeah i paid attention during the first five minutes of class and i was able to get this but to never have actually seen it or witnessed it or actually be able to palpate a patient like mm-hmm. that who comes from a different background than, than you know, the majority, that's, that's kind of hard as well. When you agree? Or what are your thoughts on that?
1: I totally agree with you. And I think knowledge is power. And I think a lot of times, physicians um, don't know what they don't know. And so uh, that makes it even harder. And you're right; patients can come in with all sorts of ailments, and they may not. You, know, you may have a gay patient that, that comes in and doesn't know whether to come out to you or not because they don't know whether it's a safe and welcoming environment, whether the doc that you know the, the doctor knows enough, or whether they it would be safe for them in order to do so. And so um, I th- I think it's really important that if you don't know. Um, things that you get educated on. And even if it it may not be the correct information, but it's information more than what you had before. And that's gonna actually eventually do better health
3: outcomes for all of us.
0: Yeah, more information is definitely empowering.
3: Absolutely. Totally. Completely. So if you're a patient, how do you, if you're a patient in that situation, what tips or signs are you looking for to know that it's a safe space?
1: That's a great question. I'm actually gonna be talking about that tomorrow during, during our talk, but I, I, I can tell you that. Uh, so for me, as a gay, gay patient, I, I, I can tell you my own, own own experience, and I think it's true for a lot of other us as well. Is when you first walk into the waiting room, the very first thing that you're looking for, right, are like maybe same, same-sex pamphlets, or, or maybe magazines that are for the LGBTQ community, or is there a rain, rainbow flag somewhere, or is there a trans flag somewhere? Something that makes someone feel safe when they immediately walk into to, to the room, because if it's not there people are much less likely to want to come out. And then from that, it, then it starts to the end, you know, in, intake form. You, you come in start filling out those forms that are l- l- laborious, but we all have to do them and, for instance, like on gender, it may have male, female, it, for most of them are just that, or it could be other, or it could be a, a mark for trans. And so you're immediately let, letting the patient know by seeing an in- intake form on there has the options more than just male and female that you're creating a safe environment for them. And it's, it's incredible. And also for someone like sexual orientation, even having on their gay, straight, bi, um, genderqueer, unknown, for, un- un- unsure, or even fill, fill in the blank. When we as physicians start allowing those things to occur in, in, the, in, in the waiting room and also on the in- intake forms, we are sending messages to those patients that don't fit in the cisgender heterosexual norm that it's okay to be in that clinic and that we are going to give them the best, you know, uh, best safe place possible in order to get that the, the care that they need. Uh, gosh, there's a plethora of other things can do. I mean, for physicians uh, walk, you know, walking out and meeting with them instead of if, if 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 you think a patient is trans or maybe they've marked that on, on the in- intake form, you can come out and say, "Hello, I'm I'm Dr. Cole." I, I'm, I'm doc, Dr. Holt, I go by he or him. Immediately, just by saying that, you've allowed the patient to say, oh my gosh, the doctor's actually using pronouns to go by, which makes them feel safer if they're ready to do that, to come out to you as well saying, oh my name is Sheila and I, I go by she or, 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 or I, I, I go by they. There are so many little things that we can do in the clinic environment to make the patient feel safe all the way from first walk, walking in to talking to, to, to the receptionist, to filling out the intake form, To walk back speaking with the physician to the stuff that we have in the exam rooms
2: okay yeah i think i I can't speak from a uh, physician standpoint because i'm not a physician yet Um, but from a patient or a personal perspective as an openly gay male um, i think i i i came from a a pretty i would say i wouldn't say liberal but i'd say more progressive state in minnesota where those things were apparent and were visually there when I walked into clinics, uh, but I think the biggest barrier for me was when you're sitting in the room with a physician, just you and a physician, and having to specifically ask for certain things. Like I have to specifically ask for an HIV test, even though I've asked for an STD panel and that's not included, which seems odd. But things like that, or I have to ask about, you know, possible, you know, things for um, safe sex in terms of, you know, a gay male's experience. Um, whereas I was expecting the physician to know that and to be able to educate me because they've been to school for 10 years for that specific specialty. Um, it just it turns you off in a sense that you're not willing to then share m- more because you feel they probably just won't know it. Um, and, but then you get to a physician who is very educated, has pamphlets, knows you know knows enough. Or if they don't know, they say, you know what, I don't know, I will look it up. I will talk to someone, I will get back to you. Or they refer you to someone who says, I know this person who specializes in this they're very educated uh, so someone that cares to make sure you're informed about everything
1: I love that and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that I mean physicians I think we're trained to always think we need to know everything and we don't and so uh, there are times if 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 a patient comes in say a trans patient comes in they want to start hormones and you may not be uh well well versed in that it's okay to say to them you know I I don't I don't have training in this um, I, I want to give you the best care possible, and it's okay for me to say to you that I'm, I'm, I'm going to refer you to someone who actually can give you the care that, that, that you need. I, I, I support you. I am here, here for you, but I want you to get the best possible care. I have a colleague who actually specializes in this, and I'm going to make, make that referral for you. That goes so much. So we're not, we're not rejecting the patient by any means. We're just telling them that our experiences are not as much as we'd like them to be to give them the best possible care possible but we care enough for you that we're going to get you to the person who can give you the best care that that you deserve and 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 desire
0: yeah i think that's amazing uh it it takes a lot of it to be vulnerable absolutely in in the moment that physician has to be um so it's a little bit of a risk for for that physician to take but i i agree with you and i I mean, just being a patient myself, yep. being referred to other specialists for things that my general care practitioner does not know thats right um, makes me feel more comfortable Sure. for anything, I mean, for things that aren't even trans. Absolutely.
1: Yeah.
3: S- so I guess, <clears throat> I guess my question would be, how much falls on the right or responsibility of the physician as far as educating themselves, and how much falls on the right or responsibility of the institution where they receive their medical educational training?
2: great question. <laughs> I can probably start there from just the uh, institutional side of that. As a training student doctor right now, I just, it it frightens me that there's how many physicians out there that had no training about it. And to think it's you know, not, not that it's easy, but it's such a perfect position to place that in there. It almost kind of falls on the, in my generation, it falls on the institutions completely because there's no reason why it shouldn't be in the curriculum or there's no reason why it shouldn't be somehow interwoven we we see that you know we've started to incorporate mental health and things and we've started to incorporate um you know different uh medical conditions based off of sex and it, it just seems very fluid that you would be able to put in sexuality and gender in that as well um, but for an older generation of physicians that were never trained unfortunately maybe continuing education or like they've passed that level of does the institution support their education it might fall into them specifically as an individual but i can't speak specifically to that
1: sadly i mean i i think it's i think it's both um i think even today i don't know exactly what the stats are but it's certainly in the minority of medical schools that have it part of part of the curriculum i'm going to guess probably well under 30 percent probably even closer to 20. and so um I think it does fall on them, but also I think it falls on the physician as well to be able to provide the best possible care, right? When physicians are done and they're done with their training, you have CMEs, right? You continue to go back to school each year and take classes and conferences, seminars, et cetera. I think it would be awesome for them to be able to go back and learn about LGBTQ healthcare. But with that being said, if you've never been trained in something like that, how in the hell are you, are you going to be able to learn something like that in like an eight-hour eight, eight hour seminar? And so I think a lot of times physicians are intimidated in things that they don't know, and it's much easier for them to say, I just don't specialize in that or I don't train in that, and therefore I'm not going to treat that, uh, as opposed to trying to do the best to try to get out there and get the, um, the training that they need but don't have the ability to do it in such a short period of time.
0: Maybe there's a way to structure that CME to be more specific to awareness and the, the, the ability to be vulnerable Absolutely. versus, yep. and then like a whole track, like a week long, whatever thing, if you wanted to really specialize or have that skill.
1: I, I, I love that. And there's, ta- there's times where I give, give a talk and I always say at the beginning, this is an intro to LGBTQ healthcare, or this is an intro to a safe and welcoming environment. Cause I want them to feel safe that we're just kind of going into the beginning of what we should know. And you, you may not necessarily want to end up you know, learning more about it, but at least you're, you're going to know what, um, the stuff that you should know versus the stuff that, that, that you, you don't know. And then that also gives you permission to say, you know, I've learned about some of the stuff, but I don't feel like I have the ability to give you, I don't have the expertise to give you the services that you need, so I'm going to refer you to a colleague of mine who, who does. And there's nothing wrong with, with physicians doing that. You, you were mentioning that or, or, you know earlier about if you're going to a prime you know primary care doc and and they want to refer you to a specialist there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. You want to get the best care possible for you with your your you know condition. If there are docs that either don't have the training or are discriminated against the LGBTQ community and don't want want to treat that person, they certainly have the right and I think the ob- obligation to say I don't have the ability to treat you or I don't want to treat you but I'm going to send you to someone who can.
2: Yeah, I think that the second comment I think I would just stress the the idea of empathy in terms of, you know, it's one thing to just say, sorry, I can't provide this service, here's other people. But it's another thing to say, you know, I support you as a patient and I want to serve your best of you, you know, specifically your health specifically. So I want to see you with another physician that will better be able to give you what you need versus just declining to provide services, which seems a little more, much more like an abandonment case. Um, But I think, obviously, there's no perfect world where, you know, everyone's going to follow that rule. But I think empathy—if you are going to refer someone—I think you need to show a level of empathy that you do care for the patient enough to send them somewhere else, not just "sorry, I can't help you."
0: Yeah, and I think that's where some of the obligation falls on universities for curriculums, because as universities graduate more and more medical students, those are the future doctors. Those are the people that are going to set the tone moving forward. So I think we have a real opportunity in a almost an obligation as a university to do those kinds of things, to change that tone. Uh, I mean, it, it all starts here in medical school. Yeah,
2: Absolutely. We, yeah, I would completely agree. We have we did a demographic survey at KCU. Uh, and I think this may have been the first time that they had included gender and sexuality in the intake matriculation um, for new students of 2022, um, graduating class of 2022. And I think it was close to 10% self-identifying as non-heterosexual or non um, which includes both, all the spectrum of LGBTQ community, um, and that's people who self-reported. So I would assume it might be a little bit higher, um, and that's more than one out of 10 students here at KCU alone self-identifies. So, I mean, it comes from below as well. You're supporting not only their education,
1: but them as an individual. Absolutely, and I would, I would agree with that. I think it's probably actually a higher stat. So I'm at San Francisco State Uni- University right now, and they did a summary self-reporting for students there and they asked the kids who's who do not identify as cisgender heterosexual and that number was 25 percent 25 percent of the kids and these kids are probably put age 17 to 22 roughly so one in four of them were not identifying as heterosexual or or cis in in their gender status which is amazing one in four and it's not it's not because all of a sudden the gay and lesbian population is growing (laughs) Each year, it's just that they feel more comfortable be open and out about who, who they are because society is now allowing them, especially in ag- academic centers, to be who, who, who they are. And we know that when we're, we're authentic and we are who we're, we're meant to be and we're open and out about it, we have better, he- better health out- outcomes, we have better m- mental health, and we do better in life.
3: So in and, and, um, maybe Dr. Sheehy-type fashion, I'm going to ask something that probably... Uh, I don't know the research on, but I think it's a good research question. Um, by being a part of the LGBTQ community, does it increase uh, your chances or percentages for burnout as a medical student or a resident?
1: So I, I, would, I, I don't know what research is, but I can tell you from a personal point, point of view that when I was here at KCU uh, many years ago, I was a closeted gay student. And so not only did I have to study, but I had to worry about being outed. I had to worry about maybe being dropped out of school, you know, dropping out of school if my parents found out because I was being, you know, I would lose my financial aid. Uh, I had to worry about, you know, other other people not accepting me for who, who I was. So would I have been a better medical student if I were out and open and had a support network? You're damn right. So I think it makes a huge difference. And I think it starts from academia, it starts with the faculty, it starts with the staff, and it starts with leadership, allowing students to feel authentic and to be open and honest and safe about who they are without fear of re- re- repercussions. So I'm sure if they did studies on these, it's, it's, it's hard to do studies on stuff like this because people who are closeted, they're not going to oh, yeah, say, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm the control, I'm, I'm the closeted one, right? <laughs> right. So, so it's yeah. hard. Uh, but I would definitely say that the more open and honest and the more available that you're allowed students to be their true, authentic self, the much better they're going to be as students and also future as clinicians, right? Because I actually struggle a lot. When, in fact, I didn't really come out. Well, I came out during medical school, but it was not a pleasant experience. I didn't come out to my classmates, but I came out to my family. And it was an experience that I almost you know, literally didn't survive. And, but, so I know what it's like uh to have to live a closeted life and i also know that really caused me to not do near as well school as i could have if i were able to have had the support that i needed when i needed it
2: yeah, and i would i would add that well one I, I started medical school as an openly gay male so i can't speak from the closeted standpoint but being in a position where i have met and, and conversed quite a bit with a lot of the lgbtq community here at kcu there are quite a few to my surprise that are so closeted to either their family or to the institution itself, um, which just breaks my heart because I myself have been fortunate enough to have the most amazing family and support and friend group. And um, even through the admissions process here, was very open and transparent about my ambitions and passions. Um, but I'd say, and you said the institution that it really falls on that first impact. And I think it really starts from the admission standpoint. I, I know <laughs> I vividly remember there was a couple of universities that specifically asked you to identify in your admissions, uh, in your admissions, uh, the supplemental application um, if you wanted to identify as a part of the LGBT community. Um, and in, on a, on an interview day, you would be paired with an individual um, that also identified, and they would walk you through what it means to be an openly out uh, medical student. Uh, I think it just it made such an impact. And I think if you see them talking about that topic in admissions, you're way more likely to. Um, have peak interest in that institution and it shows you from the beginning that that they have you know that they are willing to talk about it. I mean that's just like the first step is willing to converse about that.
1: And that just kind of brings up uh I'm thinking back to when we were talking about the in- intake forms about making people feel more more comfortable. I was reading the study that talked about, if you have a, on an intake form where people are able to have a box besides just being male or female, or have an area where they're able to talk about their sexual orientation, they were two and a half more times more likely to be honest with their doctor about their gender identity or their sexual orientation than if the forms didn't have it. So forms matter, mm-hmm. right? And asking people those questions on an intake form matters because it makes them feel safe. They may not be ready to, to actually put it on, the, on on the form yet, but they and sub so subconsciously it's in there. It's like wow, they're actually allowing me to have the opportunity to be open and honest if I feel up ready and safe to do so. So it, that it, words matter, papers matter, and forms matter. And on the other end of it, really
2: quickly, I'll just finish on this. Is you know we obviously there are definitely barriers that for people who are closeted are not open with their sexuality in medical school, but on the other end, someone who is. Uh, Open like myself, I've actually started to bear a lot of responsibility (laughs) that uh, from my own taking. So they're not asking me to do it, but I've definitely taken up these roles, which then puts another responsibility that your normal student might not wish to serve on committees, which I love serving and I find so much passion in it, but it does add another level to my experience that I'm not able to study. And, And my end goal is you know, I wouldn't want to do med school without being able to, you know, fill my passion in terms of. Uh, LGBT health, but you have individuals that, of all minority groups, uh, that have to take up a certain responsibility when it comes to leadership and to uh, trying to proactively change the institution that does sometimes lead to burnout. It just, sometimes it can be too much, it can be, you know, overwhelming burden on your shoulders to always be the, you know, the visual icon and the, the, you know, like the, I would say the spokesperson for that entire group. Um, which sometimes can really be a burden. But, and most times it is the best
1: feeling in the world to be able to give back to your community. I actually agree with you. I think what you're doing is a very noble and very wise and an amazing thing. And uh, I, I agree that it adds to a level to medical school that most people shouldn't have to endure. But I can also tell you that what you're doing is saving lives. Yeah, hopefully we're all making a difference.
3: It, it, it's not just saving lives, but when you get a chance, I encourage all of y'all to go read this poem called The Bridge Builder. That's basically what you're doing. You're bridge building. Like literally I'm looking at the bridge builder poem right now from Dr. Hope being the guy that actually went and built the bridge and tired of going the long way around to you being able to actually walk across the bridge and not having to go through that difficult path. So it's kinda like one of those pay it forward type of deals where you you know, it's not easy, but it it's one of those things where Like you said, you're saving lives, and you got to think about who else is coming behind you. You're making their path a whole lot easier so that they don't have to be the only voice. There are multiple voices. Here we are 20 years later, you know, in 20 years, we won't be having the same conversation. How do we get diversity and inclusion into the curriculum? No, it's in there. And, you know, it's in there, and you're able to see the involvement of not only The curriculum, but the medical education field as well, so that you know you don't have physicians who are uncomfortable. Everybody's comfortable, right? right. Everybody's comfortable. You know, that's that's just my thoughts. And I
1: I would I would even add to that that not only the people that are following you, but the people that are with
3: you right now, but are not yet out. Mm -hmm.
1: They don't have the voice. Yeah, they
3: they they don't they don't have that voice yet. It's. It's kind of like this movie that I was watching uh, where at the end of the movie, at the beginning of the movie, somebody had empowered the actor or the actress to say, you have a voice. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until they got enough courage and they saw it enough and that moment hit them that they picked up the microphone and they utilized their voice. See, you've picked up the mic and you know you have a voice. We're still waiting on people to pick up the mic, Mm -hmm. right? So once they pick up the mic, then you're able to kind of not back away, but you, it's a whole lot better, it's a whole lot louder. You're able to have a group with you as opposed to you know, standing solo or in a pair or something mm-hmm. of that nature.
0: It's very valuable to have the feedback come from a student. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how often faculty members will advocate for things. But if there are students that are advocating for the same thing, it amplifies faculty voices a hundredfold. Uh, because students are what administrators focus on. Yep. I mean, you're the ones that are, you know, funding the university, in, yep. in, 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 a, in a way, with your tuition dollars. The
2: most student-centered university. Yeah, so <laughs> there it, you, go.
0: <laughs> you uh, so I, I, I thank you very much. It, it's, I, it takes great courage, and I, I really you. appreciate it.
2: I mean, I think it also takes reception and takes also a level of support from faculty and staff to be able to do the, the you know, to fulfill what I've wanted to fulfill, and also the support and the help from students that I've really found to be amazing. So, uh, but I think it. I, it also. Uh, it's interesting. I, I was talking to Dr. Walker about this the other day. Is I was envisioning one. You know, just picturing wh- if I would have gone to one of the most LGBT-friendly medical schools in the nation that had 30 hours of curriculum already placed in there, what my experience would have been, and how it would have been different than right now. And sometimes. You know, we're at this tipping point here at KCU where we have this opportunity to really uh, inflict real change, and it's, I think, one of the best opportunities for myself to matriculate here at this point in time where you know, I really can make a difference and be a part of this change. I might not personally benefit from the new curriculum, but I will be able to be a part of something and be able to learn these crucial skills that you know, on how to innovate or how to um, you know, really change the status quo and how, how we train physicians.
0: Yeah, you'll be able to point back at this in the future and be like, look, that's what I did. Yeah. And then when you go somewhere new, you'll do it again. And you'll exactly. do it again. And you're practicing
2: Every hospital, how to do this. Yeah. Every clinic has these same or, or, concerns.
3: Or even build on top of it, not even be able to look back and say, this is what I did, but be able to evolve and matriculate the curriculum into residency programs. Yep. So when you're able to go to graduate medical education, you're able to say, OK, if I was able to, effect change here on an undergraduate medical education uh, field? What can I do in graduate medical education so that my peers that are a year, two years, three years away from being out on their own practicing, that they feel comfortable? Because you might have started with one institution and you might have been able to effect change here, but going into a residency and being able to effect change might start the global process, because remember, it only takes a seed once you start planting seeds everywhere and start watering them then you get trees right mm-hmm. and you got you got people out here that's helping you right it's oh, not yeah. by coincidence that we got dr hope <laughs> sitting here <laughs> yeah. to you right you know we got people out here who are helping you that are in the community and that are actually outside but are allies to the community as well so yeah. I'm very fortunate yes. you know, and I
1: would even argue that not only are you planting seeds, but I want you to come back and water those plants too. Water yeah. those trees, right? So once you're out there the practicing, you do your residency. You you become a physician. You're out there. Come back here and do do what we're doing right now, right? Well, come back and doesn't. teach, right? Come back and proctor, whatever. Hopefully they don't turn out like my IKEA succulents, which might have not. <laughs> <through the winter. laughs> Hopefully my watering skills become a little better, you know, more matured. We'll keep it ready for you, Okay, yeah. we'll, we'll water it. Might need a staff to water. but
2: actually, I actually have a question for faculty, which is all three, three of you in some sense, is what responsibility falls on the institution to train the faculty or for the faculty to advocate for the training themselves to teach students? Because I know I've heard you can change the curriculum, but really it then falls on how are the faculty trained to teach the curriculum. And are, do they have the skills or do they have the education to teach it? Is it something that faculty have to go on their own and learn about? Or is it something that institutions say, okay, we need to teach you this. We need to make sure that you are up to date and you are at a level to be able to you know, profess to students or to be able to educate them.
0: I'm okay starting. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's, I learned a lot of it on my own through personal things, through religion things. Um, going to graduate school at the University of Iowa, it was very much a, a spot where this kind of thing was going on. Very aware of it. Um, it wasn't specifically in my training, um, but I interacted with people on a daily basis that identified as different mm-hmm. than I was, um, and so I, I would say that being in Iowa City was a time for me that I shifted perspectives completely. I would say at the beginning of graduate school, I was much more conservative, um, hands off. I don't really understand it, so I'm kind of afraid of it. Um, but then being exposed to it and having friends that identified as, and they're just, you, you start to realize that everyone's just a person, and so, and, and that's where I started to really embody that worth of all persons mantra, mm-hmm. um, and so, then I, I bring that with me here, um, however, it's sometimes hard to incorporate that into, like, a pharmacology yeah. lecture per se, mm-hmm. um, but I, I try to approach everyone, it, it, it more comes out in my interactions with students, um, and in how I interact with other faculty members um it's so it's it, it's been a journey for me but I, I feel like now i'm on the other side of it and i i'm i'm very happy to it it's almost like a monkey off my back if you will if, if you if you start to see everyone as kind of just being uh equal i tell the story where i went on a service trip uh, to nicaragua when i was an undergrad uh and uh this is a different community, but there in Nicaragua I stayed with a family that was impoverished um, and they lived in poverty. Uh, it was very, it was very hard times for that family. Um, yet they did the exact same things that my family did. They, they still read bedtime stories. Um, they still had fun interactions in the family room. The family room wasn't set the same way as mine was, but I realized that even though they, on the outside, they appear completely different on the inside, they're the same. Um, and so those kind of experiences have allowed me to build, and I, ho- I hope to to continue building upon.
3: I guess I will go next. Um, <laughs> I'm from the south. I'm from Mississippi. Everything is different in the south. Your whole perspective changes. I think I come from a, a great family background in which I was always taught not to look at the race not to look at, uh, I I guess, all of these other things, religious backgrounds, but look at the character, look at the personality, look at who that person is, look at what they embody. If all of their core values, their character, and all of those things align with what you align with, then that is a person that you, you should like, that is a person that you should be loyal to, that is a person that you should fight for, right? You shouldn't come out with these preconceived notions that just because you are of a different sexuality or a different color, um, that you're bad because we're not, we don't have that in agreement. What is your personality like? I mean, uh, I think that goes a lot because I'm an African American male. So who am I to go out and judge people based upon uh, skin color, based upon gender based upon sexuality so as i've grown in the world and have you know been to different places i've become a little bit more outspoken and more comfortable in my place in the world my place in the world is not to just sit on the sideline right you can only sit on the sideline for so long sidelines don't affect change i, I hate to say it, you can have great coaches but as great as the coaches are it's the players that's in the game that's gonna decide the outcome. Like you can be, you can have great mentors, you can have all of those things, but you have to get in and play the game. Part of the thing for me is I think as faculty and particularly my position as a phase director, you know, I get to see students each and every day. So biases have to go out the window because you have to look out for the well-being of the communities we serve the community that i am serving are the students the students who are coming in my office and their problems don't just stop with academics their problems actually correlate from academics to life to actually things that you don't even know what you're asking so if you have a student that's having a problem that failed the exam and you're asking them you know was it the study no it's not the study no this is going on this is going on Your biases have to go out the window. You have to be empathetic. You have to understand and try to get the student back on the right track. The only way a student is going to be able to tell you exactly what is going on is they have to feel when they close that door in your office that it is the safest space that they have available so that they can be vulnerable, so that they can be truthful and transparent, and they're actually seeking help. So my background has prepared me for this. Not my educational background. I didn't, I'm not a PsyD. A I'm not a DO in psychiatry. I'm not an MD in psychiatry. But my background of being 30-plus uh, years as a black male in a majority society has shown me how you treat people. What is the appropriate way to treat people, to talk to people, to communicate with people? Once you learn that... All these letters don't really even matter. It's the person, the person that's sitting before you right across from you, and how can you help them with the problem? I don't know who said it, but I think it was Muhammad Ali, is service is the rent that you pay while you're on earth. That's my service. I'm paying my rent. Everybody else needs to actually get with that as well and stop looking, put the politics to the side, put everything to the side making sure that person when they come in your office they're better off than when they came in there you don't want to leave them more broken you need to heal them right so in order to do that you have to take a step back if you do have those preconceived notions and step out of your biases or if you don't you just have to learn more i learn every day from students to teach is to learn to learn is to teach right i hear students say it all the time I learn better when i'm able to teach people same for faculty we learn every day by teaching so that's my that's my 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 case hopefully it wasn't too deep or too corny or anything like
1: that yeah you know and i actually think that adversity can often be our biggest teachers right you come a different background than, than I mean, you're an uh, African-American man from, from, from the South. Your, your beliefs and values and what, the way you were raised was a lot different than the way maybe I was raised as, as a closeted gay person in, in rural Nebraska. And so we have to take our adversities and turn them into assets for others in which to grow, grow from. Because if we don't, then what good is what we've gone through if, if we can't use that and turn it into an asset for others in, in order for them to grow and learn? student, Dr.
3: Gown, who you asked a question. Oh, the, yeah, that, no, it's
2: a, I, I think I always forget that in terms of this discussion, it, it, it almost supersedes uh, like what you formally learned in education as, you know, in terms of when you're a faculty or a doctor, it really comes down to it, who are you as an individual when you're, you know, have you had a past of learning how to be empathetic? Have you had exposure in the past? Like we go back to that one comment, exposure is the best way to educate yourself about something that you do not know about. Um, you can have a textbook, but really confronting that individual or that community is the best way. And I think I forget that you can't just come in to a med school and be an expert in LGBT health or any minority health or any community health four years later it really takes a journey and it takes a you know, background and everyone's background is different. So I think it, everyone comes to that conclusion differently.
0: And I think that's what makes it harder mm-hmm. and higher edu- highly educated people yep. is that admitting that you don't know things. And they
2: can't, can't just learn it from a textbook. Right. It's hard for them to yeah. expect. to so like I, This is not going to come from a PowerPoint
0: slide.
1: It's
2: not going to be
0: easy.
1: Yep. Yep. And, <laughs> it's, and it's, it's okay to know that you
3: don't know. Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Yep. Exactly.
3: So, um, I know we're getting close to time, but I I wanted to take the time out just to to thank Dr. Hope for coming on the podcast, for coming to campus. Uh, I had a chance to talk with him earlier this morning. Phenomenal conversation this morning. uh, Phenomenal conversation here. Uh, Hopefully, uh, those of you who are listening to this podcast, you can take something from it um, and, and feel free to... Kind of continue the conversations, uh, reach out to uh, student Dr. Gamble, myself, or Dr. Sheehy. We're, we're willing to extend these conversations into maybe more town hall center focused types of uh, forums to where everybody can talk and dialogue, and you know get some type of commonality going on campus to where we can build that safe and exposed community of highly educated people and lifelong learners so that we can transition the rest of the world into the same direction. That's just my take on
0: it. And I can't speak for all faculty, but any day I get to interact with students is way better than just interacting with my computer. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm all for talking to students, and uh, you know that, that's what brings me joy. That's why I'm an educator. Um, it's not to, to be an educator to my computer. Um, so yeah, that's, I, I, I second what you're saying, Jason.
2: Yeah, I'd like to, I think a couple things, but the biggest things goes out to just the people around me. I think coming into med school, I was ready to learn about queer health. I was excited, and I, what I didn't realize is that, um, you know, there, it was a different path that I took. And I think that different path of, of working with faculty and working with institution comes from being, you know, the initial support from these faculty members and staff that told me, Read you could really make a difference if you did this. And I would have never thought to be able to do this if it weren't for that initial push and that support and the foundation that I've been given. And I think I think I'll internally always or eternally always be grateful for uh, this experience. And I remember emailing Dr. Holt the first week of med school because Sarah Selkirk and, and Student Services had connected uh, me with him and realizing that there are people out there that want you to succeed and want you more than just academics, more than just that, you know that GI exam score really puts you in a place where you could feel comfortable to, to become the best physician that you want to be. So I'm very grateful for every single person in this journey of mine.
0: Well, as we begin to wrap up the podcast, is there any, any last things you'd want to share with our audience?
1: Well, I'd like to share that, uh, although I'm not physically on campus all, all, all the time, I do want people to know that there are resources that I have available on my, res- uh, on my website for free. So I've written a book, and I have a coloring book that's a free download as a p- PDF, and I've also got some coming out safely series for, medical, for, for students as well. So if they want, want to go to my website, they could. It's, it's drronholt.com, so that's D-R-R-O-N-H-O-L-T.com, and I'd love to hear from, from people as well.
0: And I'll put that link on our Twitter site so that people can find it. Um, it, uh, it yeah, btwckcu on Twitter, so they'll be able to find that link easy.
1: Awesome. I would just say
2: never stop learning I think we say cultural competency but we forget that it's you're never going to become competent it's always your whole life you're going to learn about new things and so it's always about you know just always pushing yourself to learn about stuff you do not know about
3: so that's all I can say. Any
0: last words Dr. Walker, Mr. Jason over
3: there? I think I spoke more today than I have in all of the rest of the podcast. So, uh, (laughs) no, I'm good. I'm going to settle down. Uh, Hey, let's not get started on the grits. What what about your Chiefs in the Super Bowl?
0: Hey, that is a very – I'm still sensitive to that. that, That's a touchy topic, although I will say I did watch the Pro Bowl for the first time in a long time just to see
1: Mahomes play one more time.
3: Well, we got a Cali guy in here. Were were you cheering cheering for the Rams, Dr. Holt?
1: Um, not (laughs) necessarily. See, see, Mm. there we go.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, we'll wrap up this episode. Uh, Just remember that you can subscribe uh, to the podcast following the link, uh, tinyurl.com backslash btwc subscribe. Uh, Make sure to open up that link in Firefox. That'll give you a a link um, to all the different uh, episodes. If that's too complicated for you, you can find uh, episodes one through three. by by following the links, tinyurl.com backslash btwc01, 02, or 03. Um, And then again, if that's too complicated, please just find us on Twitter at btwckcu. There's links to all the episodes there. Uh, And if you have any questions or want to contact the show, uh, we're available at btwc.kcu at gmail.com. Or you can uh, email uh, and interact with Dr. Walker and I uh, specifically just by emailing us at our KCU emails. So with that, I'd like to thank our guests very much for um, coming to the show. Thank you again. Uh, And that, that wraps us up. So we'll talk to you later. Thank you. Thank you.
1: That was awesome.